Super Talk Mississippi media production. And now it's Coast View with Ricky Matthews. Brought to you by AGJ Systems and Networks on Super Talk 103.1 FM. Welcome to Coast View. I hope you're having a great day. This is the show that celebrates every single day the people who make coastal Mississippi such a great place to live, work, and play. So if you're a regular listener of Coast View, you have heard me talk about someone who's been an inspiration to me uh, personally and professionally throughout most of my adult life, and his name is Alberto Ibarguen. He's the president and CEO of the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation in Miami. He's a former publisher of the Miami Herald and El Nuevo Herald in, uh, in, in Miami, of course. Um, he describes the Knight Foundation briefly this way on Twitter. We support democracy by promoting informed and engaged communities. And man, do they do they support. Uh, two years ago, the Knight Foundation pledged about $300 million in a commitment to local journalism. So you can imagine the Knight Foundation, and Alberto in particular, have played a major role in journalism. Um, they also do work in the arts and in creating a sense of place in communities across America. As you know, this whole notion of sense of place is something I talk about every single day here on Coast View. Over the years, especially after Hurricane Katrina, the Knight Foundation has invested millions of dollars in coastal uh, Mississippi. The list is very long, but one of the most notable investments they make was over $2 million on sept- in September of 2007 after Hurricane Katrina to uh, to buy and renovate the building that is now the nonprofit center for coastal Mississippi out on Seaway Road, where all of the nonprofits, all the major nonprofits are under one roof now. And the goal is to, was to make it a stronger, more viable local nonprofit sector. And certainly that is what has turned out. So without any further ado, I want to Welcome my friend and mentor, Alberto Ibarguen, back to Coast View. Good morning, Alberto. How you doing, buddy? Good morning, Ricky. It's great to be with you. It's great to be with your listeners in, in, in coastal Mississippi. It really is. I, I, as you know, I came to be very, very fond of that area when I saw the resilience of the people there after Katrina. So I'm, I'm always thrilled to be back and always glad to talk with you. Well, you had we had we had a lot of important conversations after Hurricane Katrina. You landed here less than a week after Katrina, and we we talked about that journey in our last conversation. And we'll put a link to all of that that last conversation to this conversation, so people can look back and have a deeper appreciation for the role that you played and and the Knight Foundation played after Hurricane Katrina. But you know, I haven't met haven't had the opportunity to really mention this to you. But after my retirement. I, I had this opportunity. It's something I know that you helped tee up to do a Harvard uh, fellowship, which would unfortunately meant that just after I retired, I would have had to move to Cambridge. And uh, that wasn't really in the cards for me at that time. I, I really was looking forward to getting a break, but I was really honored with having the opportunity. And I appreciate you, uh, you know, kind of standing up for me on that. Well, I, I, I thought then, and I'm, I'm a very stubborn guy, I thought then and I still think uh, that, uh, that we, needed, we needed people, we needed thinking like yours because it isn't enough to have a great newsroom, it isn't enough to have thoughtful editors, it, you really have to have an in, you really have to have good business people running the operation so that it is an independent business. If it is not a sustainable business, it cannot be independent in, in when you're talking about uh, the news. You've simply got to be independent um, in, in order to be um, fully credible as a as a 
neutral news source. And I think uh, as Al Newharth, who started USA Today, was fond of saying the First Amendment guarantees free speech. It doesn't guarantee the business that allows that, that allows for free speech organizations like newsrooms to uh, to continue functioning year after year in an independent sort of way. Yeah, it's a, it's amazing actually to look, and we'll get into some of that in just a second at the work that the, the Knight Foundation is doing to bring uh, a community of journalists and business people together, focused on how do we practice local journalism in this new age of the digital world. And it's a, I mean, it's a, some innovative work that continues to go on. There's some successes, some failures. We're learning from it all, and uh, you know, we'll get into some of that. But you know, one of the things I had forgotten, I had forgotten. What I had learned as a publisher about what it takes to build a, a community, I had forgotten that. And I had also forgotten how many incredible relationships I had developed over time. And doing this show has given me an opportunity to really be reminded of that and to have actually the time. Because as a publisher, you didn't always have the time to focus on on, uh, you know, on building communities and building relationships the way that you would hope you can. And now I don't have a P&L to worry about. I'm just focused on building relationships and sharing stories. And it's been a real honor to have the opportunity to do that. Well, if you were, when you talked about uh, uh, sort of settling back and thinking, I knew you'd, I knew you'd be active because somebody who had been as as absolutely committed to coastal Mississippi as you were, uh, and I knew that. You may recall, I tried to, I tried to get you to come work with me at the Miami Herald here in Florida, and you, and and your basic reason was not the job at the time. It was just that you you said you loved that community. You loved where you'd grown up. You wanted your kids to experience the same kind of uh, love and affection and support that the community had given to you growing up. And I thought that was beautiful. I also thought that's this is not a guy who is just going to sit back and fish. No against no 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 offense to fishing, but it just wasn't going to be what uh, what I thought you were going to do. And I'm so glad to see uh, you stay so incredibly active in in the good things in in Mississippi. Hey, one one of the things I I want to want to reflect on is uh, I, I, when I when I think about you. There, there, there are a lot of thoughts that come to mind. But one of the thoughts that come to mind is something that the local artist, uh, Walter Anderson, who we celebrate all the time, something that he wrote. And, and I'll explain to you, you, you. It'll make a lot of sense to you, but then I'll explain to you how I believe it, it applies to you. But he said this, just remember, discontent is one of the penalties of greatness. Just remember that discontent is one of the penalties of greatness. And when I when I think about discontent, I, I think about uh, the notion of never being satisfied with the current situation. That to build a great uh, organization like the Knight Foundation, or to build great communities, we can never be satisfied. And I think one of the one of the biggest things that our community, I think every community faces, is uh, is this notion of complacency. And uh, you're a guy who never let much grass grow underneath your feet. That is for sure. Does that ring a bell with you? Oh, absolutely. Discontent, I think, is is in the way that he used it. I believe is, and I, which I think is a, a really great way to use it. Uh, means seeking better. It's not griping. It's not saying, "Oh gosh, I made I made a I made a million dollars. I wish I'd made two. 
All right. Um, it, it, it isn't. It is a. It is a question of, of uh, how you make how you make things better, and it doesn't matter. To, you can look at somebody like Steve Jobs, who was constantly. Look at the success he had. He never was satisfied. He was always looking for something better. If you look at some of the great leaders of all time, and it doesn't matter whether it's left on the left in politics or on the right, the really great leaders are always seeking something else uh, to do better. At the local neighborhood level, think of the people, think of the teachers you had. Think of the teachers you had. I, I forget who won the Academy Award two years ago, but I remember my teacher from 100 years ago, because it's getting to be about that now. Uh, actually, I'm kidding. It's only 60, but still, it's a long time. And I remember those teachers, and they always were striving for better. They were all the ones that I remember, whose names I remember, whose advice I remember, whose support I remember, were always discontent. They, they, you might get a good grade from them, but they, they could always say, you know, and you could do just a little bit better. And how about if you did this or if you edited it that way <laughs> or if you had done the work in a slightly different way, this could make it better. Looking for something better for you, for the community, for your family. You know that and that's how you live. So I know, I know you know that definition. But there's something about there's something about your constant prevailing dogged leadership over all these years. Um and we'll 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 talk about this a little bit more in the next segment. But the challenges your wife had with ALS, and we'll come to we'll come to that. You know the fact that you know you're at a you're at a stage in your life where you could you could just bail out. But what I see in you is someone who is just simply not going to sit on the sidelines. You are just doggedly determined to make your mark. And journalism and building sense of place in communities and people see you in that leadership role. And then uh, there's really sort of no give up in you, is there? I don't know how to do that give up part. Uh, and, I, and I've been privileged and I've been lucky uh, to have gotten opportunities, whether in Hartford or in New York or here in Miami, uh, to lead great organizations, great news organizations um, that helped inform communities so we could have a better citizenry. A, a, a better citizenry is a better informed citizenry. And that's a Jeffersonian view and that was Jack Knight's view. Um, the better informed that community is, the better the democracy. And then the the, the great privilege of leading uh, leading the foundation uh, with such wonderful people that we get to work with uh, in journalism, in the arts, and in cities. It's a terrific opportunity. We're having a conversation with my friend and mentor, Alberto Ibargwin from the Knight Foundation. When we come back, we'll continue the conversation. We'll see you after this break. Listen live or on demand and watch episodes of Coast View on your laptop, desktop, or on your phone or tablet by going to supertalkmsgulfcoast.com. His love for the coast is why he's here. It's Coast View with Ricky Matthews on Supertalk Mississippi Gulf Coast 103.1. Welcome back to Coast View. I am so honored today to have my friend and mentor, 
Alberto Ibarra, when the president of the Knight Foundation and former publisher of the El Nuevo Herald and Miami Herald in Miami. And uh, so let's 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 take a quick diversion, if you don't mind. You you I know that you had the opportunity to hear Adele Lyons and my um, opportunity here on Cosu to uh, to honor your wife Susanna when she passed away last uh, summer of ALS. And I was so touched to see that the University of Miami honored you and your wife in memoriam. Uh, with the incredible, incredibly positive impact you, you and she have had on the arts community. But I didn't understand just how significant a leader she was. And this is what Dean Berg said of Susanna. Susanna helped propel Miami into an internationally recognized arts and cultural community as she dedicated herself to the Perez Art Museum, uh, where she rose from advocate to volunteer, board member, and then president of its board of trustees. Her contributions live on in our community and within all of our hearts. Uh, she was a special woman, uh, Alberto, and I know that it's been tough in the in the wake of that. But um, ALS you know, is an unforgiving disease, isn't it, my friend? Oh my, it it really is. She was, uh, she was my love from I met her in 1962, Ricky. Uh, I, I was a I was on a student exchange um, in Argentina. I was there as a student. I I met her and and God help me, I I at the end of that summer I knew that when I was ready to get married, uh, she was the one I was going to marry. Six years later, I sent her a telegram saying, I'm showing up tomorrow in Buenos Aires. I showed up. Uh, we talked about it. She agreed to get married with me. And uh, I left. <laughs> so as and, and I left for I came back six months later. And that was January of 1969. We had not spent a Christmas Eve or New Year's Eve separated uh, since that uh, since that uh, since that time, uh, and uh, I miss her every day. But I'm inspired by the courage and the strength that she showed, the mental strength. ALS is unforgiving. It it. Uh, it, it, it kills the motor neurons that move your body. And so she had the kind of ALS, they're all different kinds, but she had the kind that uh, almost immediately uh, attack her ability to move and her ability to speak. And so within three months of diagnosis, uh, she was fully quadriplegic. She could not move a limb and she could not speak, but she could think, she could see, she could, she was aware of everything. It didn't, she couldn't respond. So ultimately she learned how to use an eye tracking machine called a Toby Dynavox. And she was able to write with her eyes, write letters to her grandchildren about growing up in Argentina and so forth. So there was a beautiful thing. Thing and a and a and a pitiful thing, really, to to think uh, that she was uh, that she was uh, simply not able to continue her leadership either at the museum, which is the biggest art museum here in town. She was also a member of the county arts commission. She was one of the original members of something called Funding Arts Network and had been at Fairchild Tropical Gardens on their board as well. She was a 
she she was so active in town that at one point she said, "I I think you really need to hire me a, an assistant so I can do all my volunteer work." And I said, "Wait a second, I I'm not hiring somebody to to do volunteer work. I said, volunteer work is just you go and do it." And she she said, "Well, all right." So uh, she she was. A wonderful, wonderful person, and I, I cannot tell you how much I admired how she handled um, that awful illness. I have, I know that down your way, uh, Steve Gleason is has set up a wonderful foundation uh, that has helped many people, including us, when we when we first had to encounter uh, this disease. Uh, there are other organizations like I Am ALS. It's uh, literally I Am ALS. It's a young man, lawyer, uh, I think he's up in Chicago, that is advocating for more funds uh, for, uh, for ALS uh, research because it is a, a disease that comes on. Uh, I'm not sure people really know exactly why or how, and it manifests very differently in in different people. I've talked with folks who have had who have been diagnosed for four or five years, and are still able to have a 45 minute conversation and and drive themselves to work. Um, but are are slowly declining. In the case of Susanna, she declined. She 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 had the kind that that uh, that killed her very very quickly. But it is a fatal disease. It does not have a cure. And and Lord, I I I I just pray for the day that uh, that we will solve that puzzle. And, of course, you and I chatted a little bit about this during the break, but our friend Anthony Taponzi, yeah. who was the former president of Mississippi Power yeah. Company, great guy. Uh, we had to watch his his demise, and it's just it just ravages you. And, you know, I'm, again, I'm inspired, though, how you have found strength in Susanna, uh, even in her death, and have been able to go on with your life and continue to make the impact that you're making and to have – uh, the two of you honored uh, by the University of Miami, I think, was probably just the beginning of recognition that you two as a power couple, you brought a lot to the table. You can't succeed in life without a good partner, can you? I don't even I, I can't even begin to tell you how much I agree with that. And she was she was she was a driver and she inspired. Uh, but mainly she just had she had such strong values and she was so outspoken. Um, I I was more political. I was in a job like you had, where as publisher you get all kinds of views, and you have to you have to take views from uh, anybody who's got thirty five cents is my kind of guy in the newspaper business, and uh, and uh, she she just did not know how to suffer fools, and uh, and she would said she would say so, and I'd say Susanna, you can't say stuff like that, and she said, well why. Why not? It's what I think. It's what I believe. Look at look at the look at the facts. Look at the facts. She was a very strong-willed woman, um, and truly the 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 glory of my life. Um, oh my! Yeah. Uh, was to was to be with her for fifty-three years. Wow. You, when you're talking about that strong will, you're describing my wife. I know Anne is that way, too. <laughs> she is very much that way, and, and it's really helped me. Helped me. She, she was always that rock of Gibraltar standing behind me so that I could uh, do what I needed to do. Hey, you notice over my shoulder this Ukrainian flag, Ukrainian flag, and I've had it there for you know since the war started. 
And I said, I said on my show, because I talk about this a lot um, with various guests, the, the role that social media has played in society to undermine society, to undermine democracy. I know you've done a lot of work with, in, in the area of social media. Section 230, I've talked about it here on my show many times. Yeah. But, but if you think about it, I, if you do a search on the role that, that the iPhone is playing, specifically as it relates to Ukraine, if you just do a search on that, what you get is just unbelievable amount that's been written about it. Because I've said on the show that probably one of the defining characteristics of this war will be the the role that citizen journalists are playing and and helping us all be aware of it. And um, one of the things, this Texas A&M wrote this, the transition from a highly centralized media eco- ecosystem to a much more fragmented landscape with many different information source, sources has radically changed the way people receive their news about global events. And it goes on to say, at the same time, people can see and share important, dramatic, and traumatic uh, um, uh, events quickly, which might encourage social action and mobilization of huma- humanitarian efforts as it relates to h- Ukraine. But it's you know it's a what they say too is that it's a double-edged sword. But if you you can, everything that you could read about Ukraine literally applies to the local community as well. It's a double-edged sword in that you can you can immediately get a lot of information very quickly but at the same time you the information can be presented in different ways that that ends up skewing how people see that you know it, it can be used in different kinds of ways some uh, supporting disinformation some supporting misinformation but it is dynamic. The, the, the Ukrainian situation has literally the world uh, aligned around the role that propaganda plays, the role that a reliably and accurately informed citizenry plays that you talk about all the time. But it is a dynamic moment for, for journalism and for technology, isn't it? It's, it is absolutely. And it, but it is, it is also a, uh, an overnight change that took uh, that was years and years in coming. As you were talking, I remember the very first time I saw that phenomenon of citizen journalists was was and and uh, and this kind of media was in 1994, the Northridge earthquake in Los Angeles. I was working at Newsday in New York. <clears throat> My sister was vice president of Prodigy, which you remember was a, a rival of AOL back in the day, um, and, and before Google, before uh, e- Gmail or anything like that. And I remember that my Prodigy uh, feed just absolutely blew up with people in Los Angeles who had experienced the earthquake and their sense of community was that they went to their computers and wrote it down. And I remember taking a pr- making a printout. You remember with it, where the printouts used to have the little the, the holes on the side? I made a, I made a whole big printout. I took it to the editor, and he looked at it, and he said, well, this is okay, but this isn't journalism. This isn't all that well written. And I said, Tony, th- this is... This is fresh. This is hot. this is like hot off the press. This is these are eyewitness eyewitnesses who are telling you what they experienced. Uh, it was the beginning of what you're now seeing in Ukraine uh, that I think is the is the world we live in. So let's do this. We're going to continue this part of the conversation when we come sure. back from break. We'll continue with Alberto Ibargon after this break.
listen live or on demand and watch episodes of Coast View on your laptop, desktop, or on your phone or tablet by going to supertalkmsgulfcoast.com. And now, it's Coast View with Ricky Matthews. Brought to you by AGJ Systems and Networks on Supertalk 103.1 FM. Welcome back to Coast View. I have my friend and mentor, Alberto Ibargan, with us uh, today. I'm so honored to have him. When we went to break, Alberto, we were talking about Ukraine and mm-hmm. the the changing role, or maybe the solidification of the role that technology is playing in this war with citizen journalists. I, I, wanted, I wanted you to know that I met a young – my cousin's daughter – has uh, adopted a couple of boys from Ukraine, and as a result of that, she got to know an independent, um, um, an independent uh, a volunteer over in Ukraine who is still there. She's from Florida, incidentally, and uh, she does uh, missionary work. And this group of people have sort of cobbled together. Uh, one of the a young man by the name of Sasha, who is a videographer in his real world, another guy by the name of Andre, who is in his other life, he is a software development guy. And they're in western Ukraine now, and they're they're cobbling together these supplies, helping families. They got in some vans, and they're moving families over to the border. They're they're bringing supplies to people they call defenders. The way that they're using technology to stay in touch with volunteers all over the all sure. over the country, man, it is inspiring. She's been on my show a couple of times. We're going to continue to stay in touch with her as long as the technology enables us to connect. But here is this group of volunteers in western Ukraine having a conversation with Ricky. Matthews and Biloxi about what's happening. And what I sense in them, Alberto, is something that we said many times after Katrina, that buildings don't make a community, the people do. And the role that the people will play, I'm not trying to liken what happened here after Katrina with what's happening now as it relates to the war, but as it relates to the human spirit and the connection that we as humans have to a place I think that Putin has highly underestimated Ukrainians, and I get to see that up front and personal through my conversations with uh, that team from from Ukraine. You see it too, don't you? I do, and I, well, first of all, I hope you're right that Putin is is uh, has bitten off more than he can chew. Time will tell, but I I see the same thing. I see it in my own family. My niece, um, Madison, uh, Ed's. You and I have talked about my my golfing uh, brother uh, Ed, uh, who just got it. I, I've got to put in a plug. Got, just got uh, inducted into the golf hall of the the PGA Golf Hall of Fame. He's over at Duke University. His his uh, daughter, who's a real estate agent in New York City, uh, felt so much uh, a member of of that community, respected so much uh, what's going on uh, that she's she's off. I think it's uh, tomorrow. She's off to uh, Poland, where she will do work with Ukrainian refugees. Uh, we at the foundation are are firmly. Uh, uh, funders of programs in the United States, but on when there is a natural disaster someplace, we'll uh, we'll sometimes make an exception for that. And we've actually sent a hundred thousand dollars for a refugee relief fund and another hundred forty thousand dollars to help with uh, resettle and also with journalism, resettle journalists who are under tremendous pressure. And by the way, they're under tremendous pressure in Moscow as well. Any journalist who is trying to write the real story of what's going on. You and I were talking about the marvels and this community, this creation of a world community. That's great. 
But there's also the other side, and that is the that it's very easy to sound authoritative uh, and still give you give out mis and disinformation, uh, particularly dis, uh, particularly um, the the disinformation. And in Russia, if you are listening on your iPhone on the same technology that you and I are lauding, in Russia they're getting a story about the American aggression and the NATO aggression uh, against Russia that makes it necessary, they say, for Russia to have invaded Ukraine. And so you've got you've got a, uh, a similar set of events that are being totally interpreted in a completely different way. And if you do not have a multiplicity of sources, then people are ty are likely to believe you know what they keep on hearing. You repeat it enough times; it's the old Nazi big lie. You repeat it enough times, and people begin to believe it. We are in a very very difficult time. Uh, my friend Tim Berners Lee, who who is actually the guy who invented uh, the World Wide Web when he was a uh, practice, he was he now teaches at MIT in, in Massachusetts, but he was a young engineer back in the day and he invented this thing he called the World Wide Web and he did not take out a patent on the World Wide Web because he thought it should be free and universal. And he back then when I first met him, which is now 20 years ago, uh, about um, he said he didn't take out that patent because uh, he, he, his fear was that the biggest threat to a free and universal web was the lack of authenticity, the lack of veracity, the amount of cheating and the amount of lying and the amount of mis and disinformation as we call it today. It is a major, major issue, and I firmly believe, and I, this is, my friends tell me it's just because you're a lawyer and you're litigious by nature, uh, but I firmly believe that there, there needs to be some change in the law today that will make some kind of liability uh, if you are the, the purveyor of information that is provably false and that has caused harm. I'm not saying that uh, that you've got to prove it, you've got to take it to court, but it makes no sense to me anymore. It did when the technology was brand new. To protect that technology, it made sense to protect it from liability. These days, it just doesn't make sense to me that if if you say if you public if you say uh, uh, if you slander somebody if you libel somebody on your radio program, you're you're libel. But if you do it on Google, you're not, or on yeah. Facebook, you're not. Right. So what sense does that make? People are naturally confused, and I th I think. Uh, you know, what does that mean for Facebook and Google? And they always say, well, it's too much information and it comes too fast. And I think, yeah, and you've enabled that. And so yeah. maybe you ought to figure out how to enable some other kind of checking. Maybe it's with artificial intelligence agents. Maybe you're going to have to spend more money defending yourself in court. But if you cause harm, there ought to be liability. I want to think about, you know, I, again, I have the benefit of knowing sort of in traditional media what the legal responsibilities were of us. 
And uh, why we had to have layers of editors in place to make sure that we were trying to get it as accurately and as corroborated as we possibly could. And even when we did that, we at times had responsibilities legally for what was done if it was inaccurate or it caused harm in some way. And I've talked a lot about Section 230 on this show, and we won't go into a long iteration on that. But the point I, I would make is this. Facebook built this incredible ad delivery tool that that you and I and it's you know as former publisher we look at it and say this ability to target ads in the way that they can it's brilliant, but when you use that same tool to determine what people's news feeds are going to be, what it does is it makes everyone sort of think that everyone agrees with them and that's not a good thing. We have artificial intelligence deciding based on our likes and dislikes what gets delivered to us. There's no validation of whether what gets delivered to us is accurate or not or whether it's partially accurate or whatever. It just gets delivered to us. So they built this this uh, this tool that encourages conflict because when there's a lot of engagement, they make more money. And so, but they've used artificial intelligence to do it. They don't have the layers that we had in place. It's extremely expensive, and uh, and as a result, with these protections, they've become these incredibly large big tech companies often saying they're in the technology business, not in the content business. But I know you and I don't, we don't agree with them on that point, but something's going to have to be done. Uh, when yeah. you look at what happened in Myanmar, where you, when you, there's so many incredible examples of how this tool's been used in ethnic cleansing and, and look what it's done during the political times in this country, the, the kind of division that is created through fake news. It's a real, real problem. And yeah. I don't see any solution other than making them more legally liable for for what they share. I think that's, I, I believe that's a step in the right direction. I think uh, to, to go along with your point, I heard an interview, I forget on what show, with Eric Schmidt, who was the former chairman of, uh, of Google, who said, uh, you know, nothing engages people like anger. And so if you have YouTube and there's, and there's, a, there's a, uh, a program that makes you angry, well, the thing that is going to keep you engaged is another program that is going to make you angrier and so if you look at it if you look at a youtube video when it finishes there's that little clock that says in 30 whatever it is in 35 or a minute or a few seconds we're going to send you another like video so if you were that angry you're going to get even angrier and ultimately you you multiply that millions of times and you end up getting you end up aiding the kind of divisions we have in the country. We need to find the things that uh, that we have in common. And that, I think, is what um, news organizations uh, are, are good at. And if we can figure out how to do that digitally, uh, we'll be in better shape. When we come back, we're going to continue the conversation with my friend and mentor, Alberto Ibargan. We'll see you after this break. Also, listen live to Super Talk Mississippi Gulf Coast 103.1 on your Amazon Alexa devices. Once you've enabled the skill, just say, Alexa, open Super Talk Mississippi Gulf Coast. 
His love for the coast is why he's here. It's Coast View with Ricky Matthews on Super Talk Mississippi Gulf Coast 103.1. Welcome back to Coast View. I have my friend Alberto Ibarguen, who is the president of the Knight Foundation. And I mentioned to him before we started our conversation today that we needed about three hours to talk. <laughs> and we probably should come back every few months and just... Have a conversation. But, hey, Alberto, before we get – we only have a few minutes left, and I want to make sure that I talk about your conversations with the co-founder and CEO of Axios, which I found incredibly interesting. And we'll come back to that in a second. But you, you tweeted something back in September of 2021, and it was regarding a, a – well, let me just read it. A tr- troubling Australian court ruling, also baffling. How can news organizations be held liable for third-party comments about their news reports posted on Facebook? But Facebook it, itself is not responsible for the publication on its own site. Uh, that was a that was a real that that's not the answer right there. That was definitely not the answer, and I know it troubled you. And uh, anything else you want to say about that? No, just that we have a we have a, a legal regimen in the United States is very much like that Australian system. The the uh, the early case on that was an AOL case, and I say this with some trepidation because I used to be a director of AOL, not at the time of this lawsuit, but uh, but I was on the uh, was on the board when Tim Armstrong was chair um, and the case basically was a, a libel that had been published uh, that had been broadcast actually by a TV station uh, taking off something they had found on AOL AOL was not liable uh, had no liability but the but the uh, the television station had to settle uh, that makes no sense. It, what's, what's, uh, as they say, in the old days, what's good for the goose is good for the gander. Uh, and it seems to me that if you're in the business of disseminating false information, that causes harm. That yes. causes harm. This is not just you made a mistake or you you know mistakenly published something, but that causes harm. Then you ought to you ought to figure out. Uh, if you make a bad car that crashes, if you make um, baby blankets that burn up, uh, we live in a world of products liability. Uh, I think the theories should apply uh, here as well. Well, the Knight Foundation, as I said, has made some tremendous investments in local journalism, and it literally would take days for us to share all the work that you were doing. But you get a chance to sort of lick inside your commitment during the Knight Media, um, um, what was called the Knight Media Forum. I, I, and I, I appreciate that what you guys did on your on your website is uh, attached the videos to each section so that people who were not able to attend can yeah. go back and take a look at it. And for someone like me who's deeply interested in where are the conversations these days? Well, here's here's my thought. First of all, the conversations are inspiring because you've got so many smart people, so many smart people who are involved in the conversation today, and that's really good to see. It's a little bit disappointing in that we're still struggling with finding the business model that's going to work, you know, whether it's going to be a nonprofit business model, lots of talk and discussion about that, or whether it's more like what Axios is doing with their local Axios uh, program that they're planning. And I found the conversation between you and the co-founder and CEO of Axios to be particularly interesting just from a business case point of view. But that, it's clear to me that that's, I mean, part of your focus is on keeping good journalism going while we continue to sort of wrestle with 
What's the business case that's going to help us be sustainable 10 years from now, as the CEO of Axios said? But it is incredible the number of people who are thinking about this today and the, and the Knight Foundation's ability to bring all those people together and let them learn from each other. That's got to give you hope. It does give me hope, and it gives me hope that we started that forum 15 years ago, because as you may, may remember, this is the this was the 15th edition of the Night Media Annual uh, Forum. Uh, at the beginning, at the first one, we didn't have quite 200 people, um, and uh, at this one, we had more than 3,600, 3,600 people sign up. Now, obviously, being virtual made a big difference, but the point of this is to bring together people of a range of points of view, um, and and look at look at the look at the facts. Look at the listen to who's doing what. Listen to uh, not-for-profit solutions in Texas Tribune at uh, Voice of San Diego, MinPost, uh, New Haven Independent. They've been around for for a decade, and they're still they're still uh, successfully put, putting out uh, news. Uh, there are there are hundreds of experiments. Uh, Baltimore is about to get a new uh, digital. Houston is is has a new digital uh, news operation. Um, Houston, I think, is just about to get started. Fort Worth has already started. North Carolina uh, is is organizing one in Salt Lake City. Um, the newspaper there converted to a not-for-profit. And what Jim Vandehei has done, he's the guy who started Politico and then um, co-started uh, Axios, uh, Axios uh, a news service out of Washington, is He's decided to try to do a for-profit uh, model, and I say more power to him. Let's figure out if they've already got a model in Charlotte, uh, North Carolina. We need to figure out how to make sustainable models. I don't care if it's for-profit or not-for-profit. I do care that our citizens are informed when they make their decisions. At the end of the day, it's about an accurately and reliably informed citizenry. Yes. That's the key to our democracy. And, man, I wish we had two more hours to talk about it. But it's been great to catch up with you, Alberto. Great to be with you. hear your passion you. and reconnect with you again, my friend. All best to Mississippi. Talk to you soon. All best to you and your family as well. We'll, uh, we'll see you later. Have a great day, and we'll see you tomorrow. Super Talk Mississippi Gulf Coast 103.1 on Facebook. Facebook.com slash Super Talk MS Coast 103.1. A Super Talk Mississippi Media Production.